Are you ready to jump into some true crime docs, crime thrillers, and more? Check out our website for an extensive list of our favorite movies and shows at thesirenspodcast.com slash watch, and find our favorite true crime and thriller books and authors, some covered on the show, at thesirenspodcast.com slash author alley. You can even find special deals for Amazon Music, Audible, Discovery Plus, Paramount Plus, Showtime, and even Grubhub. If you're looking to jump in immediately, check out our pinned Facebook post for some streaming service free trials on us. You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. Lately, I have been, you know how when you like break a tooth, you've got that raw nerve and anything that touches it, it just shoots through your body. Oh, so that's you right now? You're the raw nerve? (laughs) Yes, I am the raw nerve right now. Shit. (laughs) It's me. Well, that was a really emotional supermoon too. It was in Libra, so for fuck's sake. I've been super emotional for like the last week. Blame the moon. Wait, aren't you a Libra? Yeah, I'm a Libra. So it was in your sign and you're already an emotional Libra. Oh, fuck. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm... Yes. Thing. Oh, shit. <laughs> Don't drink the fucking moon water. Just give it to your plants. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> I'm a screwed over human being right now. <laughs> oh, shit. Poor thing. Those of you Killerinis out there who don't know anything about Waco... Let me tell you about it a little bit. It all started with a man named David Koresh, who was actually born Vernon Wayne Howell on August 17th, 1959 in Houston, Texas. His mother at the time was 14 years old and she was a single mother. So his father was kind of out of the picture. Before Koresh was born, his father met another teenage girl and abandoned his mother completely. So Koresh never actually met his father and his mother began cohabitating with a new boyfriend who was also like a violent alcoholic. Oh my God. So in 1963, Koresh's mother left with her boyfriend and placed four-year-old Koresh in the care of his maternal grandmother, Erlene Clark. His mother returned when he was like seven years old after her marriage to a carpenter named Roy Haldman, which is a completely different guy than the guy she left with, by the way. I just, ugh. Bonnie Sue and Haldman, Bonnie Sue was his mother, had a son together named Roger, who was born in 1966. So Koresh had a half-brother. Koresh described his early childhood as lonely due to his poor study skills and dyslexia. He was put in special education classes and nicknamed Vernie by his fellow students. I I don't know why. I couldn't tell you why. (laughs) Koresh dropped out of Garland High School his junior year 
And when he was 19 years old, he had an illegal sexual relationship with a 15-year-old girl who became pregnant by him. He claimed to have become a born-again Christian in the Southern Baptist Church and soon joined his mother's church, which was the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There he became infatuated with the pastor's daughter and while supposedly praying for guidance, he opened his eyes and allegedly found the Bible open at Isaiah 34, 16, stating that none should want for her mate. Convinced this was a sign from God, he approached the pasture and told him that God wanted him to have his daughter for a wife. Like, what the hell? Yeah, it it sounds a little crazy already. I know. The pastor threw him out. <laughs> like, he wasn't having it. He's like, that's, I don't think that's what God said. And when he continued to persist with his pursuit of the daughter, he was expelled completely from the congregation. Holy shit. In 1981, Koresh moved to Waco, Texas, where he joined the Branch Davidians, not to be confused with the original Davidian Seventh-day Adventist group that was his mother's church. It's like a completely different branch. Benjamin Rodden, who had died like in 78 originated the branch group in 1955 with new teachings that were not connected to the original Davidians. Koresh played guitar and sang in church services at the sex headquarters outside Waco. So he started to assent to leadership of this branch. And in 1983, Koresh began claiming the gift of prophecy. It's speculated by the author of the book, A Place Called Waco, that Koresh had a sexual relationship with Lois Rodden, the widow of Benjamin Rodden and the leader of the cult, who was then in her like late 60s, with Koresh eventually claiming that God had chosen him to father a child with her who would be the chosen one. Um, sure. In 1983... Lois allowed Koresh to begin teaching his own message called The Serpent's Root, which caused controversy in the group. Lois's son, George Rodden, intended to be the cult's next leader and considered Koresh an interloper. When Koresh announced that God had instructed him to marry Rachel Jones, who then added Koresh to her name, there was a short period of calm at the Mount Carmel Center but it proved only temporary. In the ensuing power struggle, George claimed to have the support of the majority of the cult, forcing Koresh and his group off the property at gunpoint. So this is already going really well, I think. Amazing. Koresh and around 25 followers set up camp at Palestine, Texas, which was 90 miles from Waco, where they lived under rough conditions and buses and tents for the next two years. During this time, Koresh undertook recruitment of new followers in California, the United Kingdom, Israel, and Australia. I, I also want to say, I, I heard somewhere that this struggle between George, the, the son of the 60-year-old woman who was supposed to be the next uh, leader or whatever, I actually heard in a documentary that he fought him for leadership. I mean, like, 
actually fist fought him for leadership of this cult. That's unnecessary. So just he's already kind of a violent person. So just keep that in mind. Yeah. After undertaking some recruitments from these places, that same year he traveled to Israel, where he claimed he had a vision that he was the modern day Cyrus. And by Cyrus, he was like referring to Cyrus the Great. You know, for somebody who references this stuff a lot, like in his life, you would think that he would have done better in school. (laughs) Also, I wanted to kind of draw attention to these people were called Branch Davidians, and his name was David Koresh. So if you look at it, yeah, it looks like Davidians, but it was not named after him. It was already a thing. And actually, he changed his name to David Koresh in his early 20s, and it could have been influenced the other way. It could have been influenced by this cult. So anyway, moving on. The founder of the Davidian movement, Victor Hotef, wanted to be God's implement and establish the Davidic kingdom in Palestine. And Koresh also wanted to be God's tool and set up the Davidic kingdom in Jerusalem. At least until 1990, he believed the place of his martyrdom might be in Israel. But by 1991, he was convinced that his martyrdom would be in the United States. Instead of Israel, he said the prophecies of Daniel would be fulfilled in Waco, Texas, and that the Mount Carmel Center was the Davidic kingdom. (laughs) Sure. When Lois died in 1986, the exiled branch Davidians wondered if they would be able to return to the Mount Carmel Center. But despite the displacement, Koresh now enjoyed the loyalty of the majority of the branch Davidian community. By late 1987, Rodin's support was in steep decline. We're talking about the son now, who took over when his mother died. To regain it, he challenged Koresh to a contest to raise the dead. What the hell? This is so crazy. Going so far as to exhume a corpse to demonstrate his spiritual supremacy, Koresh went to authorities to file charges against Rodin for illegally exhuming a corpse, but was told he would have to show proof such as a photograph of the corpse. Why wouldn't they just go see? Like, how hard would it have been to just go see? That's so stupid. Holy shit. Koresh seized the opportunity to seek criminal prosecution of Rodin by returning to the Mount Carmel Center with seven armed followers, like his own followers, not like police, and allegedly attempted to get photographic proof of the crime. Koresh's group was discovered by Rodin, and a gunfight broke out. Okay, so on the documentary, it said that he just like fist fought him, but apparently it was a total gunfight. <laughs> anyway, when the sheriff arrived, Rodin had already suffered a minor gunshot wound and was pinned down behind a tree. As a result of the incident, Koresh and his followers were charged with attempted murder. Holy cow. At the trial, Koresh explained that he went to the Mount Carmel Center to uncover evidence of a criminal disturbance of the corpse by Rodin and Koresh's followers were acquitted and in Koresh's case a mistrial was declared oh my god Howell and his companions were dubbed the Rodinville Eight by the media seven of them were acquitted and the jury was hung on Howell's verdict 
The county prosecutors did not press the case further. Even with all the effort to bring the casket to court, and yes, he tried to have them bring the casket to court, the standing judge refused to use it as as evidence for the case. Judge Herman Fitz ruled that the courtroom is no place for a casket when defense attorney Gary Coker requested it to be used as evidence for the case. During questions about said casket, Rodden admitted to attempting to resurrect Anne Hughes, the body that they had illegally exhumed, on three separate occasions. The Roddenville Eight were forced to carry the casket down the street to a van awaiting the body. While waiting for the trial, Rodden was put in jail under contempt of court charges because of his use of foul language. In some court pleadings, he threatened the Texas court with sexually transmitted diseases <laughs> if the court ruled in Hal's favor. It's so stupid. Alongside these charges, Rodden was jailed for six months for legal motions he had filed with explicit language. Rodden faced 90 days in jail for living on the property after being ordered to neither live on the property nor call himself the leader of the religious group in 1979. <laughs> the next day, Perry Jones and a number of Howell's other followers moved from their headquarters in Palestine, Texas into Mount Carmel, and he was able to overtake it, just like he always wanted. In 1989, Roden murdered Wayman Dale Adair with an axe blow to the skull after Adair stated his belief that he was the true messiah. Roden was judged insane and confined to a psychiatric hospital at Big Springs, Texas. Since Roden owed thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes on the Mount Carmel Center, Koresh and his followers were able to raise the money and reclaim the property. Roden continued to harass the Koresh faction by filing legal papers while imprisoned. When Koresh and his followers reclaimed the Mount Carmel Center, they discovered the tenants who had rented from Roden had left behind a methamphetamine laboratory because of course they did. <laughs> of course they did. Which Koresh reported to the local police department and asked to have removed. This is just, and this isn't even like the craziest part because we're not even, we're not even there yet to Waco. So all of this time he had been going by his real name, Vernon Howell. In 1990, he had his name legally changed for quote unquote publicity and business purposes to David Koresh. So there you go. He kind of named himself after his own cult. Okay. Koresh is the biblical name of Cyrus the Great. Again, with Cyrus the Great. I did not know that, but uh, it's spelled differently. Koresh spells his K-O-R-E-S-H, and the biblical name of Cyrus the Great is spelled K-U-R-O-S-H. Cyrus the Great was the, a Persian king who was named a messiah for freeing Jews during the Babylonian captivity. So his first name, David, obviously symbolized a lineage directly to the biblical King David, from who the new messiah would descend, and also after the Davidian cult. He's now the leader of this cult that he had been struggling to gain control of for years. And he was allegedly involved in some unproven multiple incidents of child abuse and child sexual abuse. 
his doctrine of the house of David did lead to marriages with both married and single women in the group, which reportedly included at least one underage girl. So yeah, this was a cult, like for sure. And it's evolving even more and more. He's gaining more and more control. If you think about joining a cult, why don't you just call your parents first? Just talk to just Ask a them. minimum of an hour. Please talk to your fucking parent. Hey, mom, does this sound like a cult? Yeah, calm down. Like, I'm Catholic and it's pretty close. So just. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about not, I mean, I'm not like saying you're a cultist, but I was like, when I was watching that documentary, I was like, well, what's the difference in a cult? And just a religion. And really, when you boil it down, the, it's just that your religion is bigger. And, and supported. And a lot of gold and marble and, you know, yeah. I don't know, but very supported. <laughs> yes. Uh, a lot of people are anti-Catholic. And guess who doesn't give a shit? Me. Mm-hmm. And these women were actually surprisingly devoted to Koresh. They gave up their husband's A lot of them gave up control of like parenting their children because Koresh would tell them like there's going to come a time he would he would talk about end days all the time because he said before the end days are going to happen in Waco and we all need to be prepared. And for that to happen, you have to like relinquish control to me. And so these are my children now. And what he said went and these people were still insanely devoted to him. I just ugh. the underage girl, her name was Michelle Jones, and she was the younger sister of Koresh's legal wife, Rachel, and the daughter of lifelong branch Davidian Perry and Mary Bell Jones. So a six-month investigation of child abuse allegations by the Texas Child Protection Services 1992 failed to turn up any evidence. Possibly because the Branch Davidians concealed the spiritual marriage of Koresh to Michelle. And he also reportedly assigned a quote-unquote surrogate husband to this girl for the sake of appearances. So, like, he knew what he was doing, okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Regarding the allegations of child abuse, the evidence is less certain. In one widely reported incident, ex-members claimed that Koresh became irritated with the cries of his son, Cyrus, and spanked the child severely for several minutes on three consecutive visits to the child's bedroom. In a second report, a man involved in a custody battle visited the Mount Carmel Center and claimed to have seen the beatings of the young boy with a stick. Of course, no one could prove this. And like I said, it was a six-month investigation that didn't really turn up anything. Attorney General Janet Reno told reporters that, quote-unquote, we had specific information that babies were being beaten. However, the FBI Director William Sessions publicly denied the charge and told reporters that they had no such information about child abuse inside Mount Carmel Center. A careful examination of the other child abuse charges found the evidence to be weak and cast doubt on the allegations. Just remember later that Janet Reno was involved in this. The allegations of the child abuse stem largely from ex-members of the cult. Koresh did father multiple children by different women in the group. His House of David doctrine was based on purported revelation 
that involved the procreation of 24 children by chosen women in the community. These 24 children were to serve as the ruling elders over the millennium after the return of Christ. Oh my god. This is so crazy, y'all. Supposedly, Koresh had fathered at least 12 children by several different quote-unquote wives within the compound. Again, all of these so-called marriages, I think he had like 20 wives by the end of all this and he would like spiritually marry them so i just ugh. on august 5th 1989 howell released the new light audio tape in which he said that he had been told by god to procreate with the women in the group to establish a house of david as his quote-unquote special people this involved separating married couples in the group who had to agree that only he could have sexual relations with the wives while the men should observe celibacy. Howell also told them that God had told him to start building a quote unquote army of God to prepare for the end of days and a salvation for his followers. Koresh had announced he was entitled to at least 140 wives and that he was entitled to claim any of the women in his group as his own and that some of these mothers became brides as young as 12 or 13 years old. Not only that, but he was like grooming the children that were not his to be his brides eventually. Here's where it gets even more scary. Koresh and his followers were suspected of stockpiling illegal weapons. You know, because the end of times. In May 1992, Chief Deputy Daniel Weyenberg of the McLennan County Sheriff's Department called the ATF to notify them that his office had been contacted by a local UPS representative concerned about a report by a local driver. The UPS driver said a package had broken open on delivery to the Branch Davidian residence, revealing firearms, grenades, and black powder. On June 9th, the ATF opened a formal investigation, and a week later, it was classified as sensitive, quote, thereby calling for a high degree of oversight, end quote, from both Houston and headquarters. The documentary Inside Waco claims that the investigation started when, in 1992, the ATF became concerned over reports of automatic gunfire coming from the compound because he was, like, training his followers. He would have them, and this is, this is from interviews with the followers they said that he would have them go out and train with these weapons up to three times a day they would all go out because this compound that they were on had i want to say like 77 acres something like that and so it's just like this compound in the middle almost in the middle of nowhere and he would set up like target practice and stuff for his followers and they he would have them go out and practice using these firearms because he was anticipating some sort of apocalyptic scenario 
So he was like training them. And we're talking about everyone in the compound, men, women, and children. They were all taught how to fire these guns and how to use grenades and all this stuff. So like what the shit? On June 30th, ATF agents David Aguilera and Skinner visited the Branch Davidians gun dealer, Henry McCann who tried to get them to talk with Koresh on the phone. Koresh offered to let ATF inspect the Branch Davidian's weapons and paperwork and asked to speak with Aguilera, but he declined. Sheriff Harwell told reporters regarding law enforcement talking with Koresh, just go out and talk to them. What's wrong with notifying them? The ATF began surveillance from a house across the road from the compound several months before the siege. Basically, the ATF knew that he had illegal firearms, and a lot of them were military-style firearms and bombs, and they planned on sieging the compound and taking the weapons. So they began surveillance. The investigation included sending in an undercover agent, Robert Rodriguez, to pose as a cult member. But Koresh learned his identity, though he chose not to reveal that fact until the day of the raid. The ATF obtained a search warrant on suspicion that the Davidians were modifying guns to have illegal automatic fire capacity. Former Branch Davidian Mark Brault claimed that Koresh had M16 lower receiver parts and combining M16 trigger components with a modified AR-15 lower receiver is, according to ATF regulations, constructive possession of an unregistered machine gun. The ATF used an affidavit filed by Aguilara to obtain the warrant that led to the Waco siege. The official filing date of the affidavit was the 25th of February, 1993. Okay, so let's get to the raid. This raid is a huge, huge reason why Timothy McVeigh says that he did what he did. This in Ruby Ridge. The search warrant commanded a search on or before February 28th, 1993, sometime during the day between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. The ATF made a claim that Koresh was possibly operating a meth lab to establish a drug nexus and obtain military assets under the war on drugs. We Although the ATF's investigation focused on firearm violations, not on illegal drugs, the ATF requested assistance from the DEA and the DOD, citing a drug connection, based on the recent delivery to the compound of, quote, chemicals, instruments, and glassware, end quote, and a written testimony from a former compound resident alleging, quote, he had told him that drug trafficking was a desirable way to raise money, end quote. Several current residents had prior drug involvement, and two former residents were incarcerated for drug trafficking crimes at one point. The National Guard overflights thermal images show a hot spot inside the compound, possibly indicating a meth lab. The ATF had planned their raid for Monday, March 1st, 1993, with a code name Showtime. The ATF later claimed that the raid was moved up a day to February 28th, 1993, in response to the Waco Tribune Herald's The Sinful Messiah series of articles, which the ATF had allegedly tried to prevent 
from being published. Beginning February 1st, ATF agents had three meetings with the Tribune Herald staff regarding the delay in publication of The Sinful Messiah. The paper was first told by the ATF that the raid would take place February 22nd, which they changed to March 1st and then ultimately to an indefinite date. The ATF agents felt the newspaper had held off publication at the request of the ATF for at least three weeks. And on February 24th, a meeting between the Tribune Herald staff and the ATF agent Philip Kochenki and two other agents, the ATF could not give the newspaper staff a clear idea of what action was planned or when. The Tribune Herald informed the ATF that they were publishing the series, which included an editorial calling for local authorities to act. Personnel of the Tribune Herald found out about the imminent raid after the first installment of The Sinful Messiah had already appeared on February 27th. Although the ATF preferred to arrest Koresh when he was outside Mount Carmel, planners received inaccurate information that Koresh rarely left it. The Branch Davidian members were well-known locally and had cordial relations with other locals. The Branch Davidians partly supported themselves by trading at gun shows and took care to have the relevant paperwork to ensure their transactions were legal. Branch Davidian Paul Fada was a federal firearms licensed dealer, and the group operated a retail gun business called the Magbag. When shipments for the Magbag arrived, they were signed for by Fada, Steve Schneider, or Koresh. The morning of the raid, Paul Fada and son Kalani were on their way to Austin, Texas for a gun show to conduct business. The ATF attempted to execute their search warrant on Sunday morning, February 28, 1993. But the Branch Davidians knew a raid was coming, you know, because of that guy who was trying to be undercover in there. And their plan depended on reaching the compound without the Branch Davidians being armed or prepared, which wasn't going to happen because they knew they were coming and they were for sure armed and they were for sure prepared. While not standard procedure, ATF agents had their blood type written on their arms or neck after leaving the staging area before the raid because it was recommended by the military to facilitate speedy blood transfusions in case something went horribly wrong. Any advantage of surprise was lost when KWTX TV reporter who had been tipped off about the raid asked for directions from a U.S. Postal Service mail carrier who was, coincidentally, Koresh's brother-in-law. Holy shit. Koresh then told undercover ATF agent Robert Rodriguez that he knew a raid was imminent. Rodriguez was the one who had infiltrated the Branch Davidians and was astonished to find that his cover had been blown. The agent made an excuse and left the compound. When asked later what the Branch Davidians had been doing when he left the compound, he said they were praying. Branch Davidian survivors have written that Koresh ordered selected male followers to begin aiming and taking up defensive positions, while the women and children were, were told to take cover in their rooms. Koresh told him he would try to speak to the agents, and what happened next would depend on the agents' intentions. 
The ATF arrived at 9.45 a.m. in a convoy of civilian vehicles containing uniformed personnel in SWAT-style tactical gear. This next part. No one knows what really happened. I believe that the only people who knew for sure what happened are people who did not make it out of the compound, whether agents or cultists. ATF agents stated that they heard gunshots coming from within the compound. Branch Davidian survivors claimed that they heard the first gunshots coming from outside from the ATF agents. Someone shot first. No one knows who. Yeah, makes sense. And the second that gunfire went off, both sides acted. Everyone started firing because um, Rodriguez had gone undercover. He was actually able to install some audio monitoring inside the compound. And there are recordings of what happened inside the compound. Sometimes it's really hard to hear what's going on in there because, number one, gunfire, but then things that happened later that were really, really loud that I'll, I'll tell you about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So everyone is shooting at everyone. The first ATF casualty was an agent who had made it to the west side of the building before he was wounded. And this this was a very large compound, by the way. It housed like a hundred something people. And this included men, women, children. They had like this huge common area where they, they would all go to eat. They had, it was like a two-story building. On the second floor were the women and the children. And Koresh had his bedroom up there. And then the first floor was the men's sleeping area. And then obviously they had like a chapel type area. And then under that, they had a basement area that was supposed to be for like fallout, like a kind of like a fallout shelter. So agents quickly took cover and fired at the building while they had helicopters overhead to try to create a diversion and swept load over the complex like 350 feet away from the building the branch davidians fired on the helicopters and they hit them without injuring the crew but the helicopters immediately stopped the mission and landed on the east side of the compound agents hauled out two ladders and set them against the side of the building there's video of this siege that you can watch I'm sure that you can YouTube it. I know that there is a documentary about it that shows footage. It's called Truth and Lies Waco. And that's actually available on Hulu that you can watch. And you can see some of this footage for yourself. Because from here on out, the conspiracy theories and everything that people talk about to this day have a lot to do with the footage so i will try my best to describe what happened in the footage on the east side of the compound agents hauled out two ladders they set them up against the building agents then climbed onto the roof with the objective of securing it to reach koresh's room and the arms storage which was supposedly up there as well there's like a in the video of this you can see them set the ladders up it's a two-story building they go up onto the roof of the first story and then it's not all two-story so half of it is still one story so they set up go to the first floor and then 
there is the second floor and there's a second floor window and that's what they're trying to go into to try to get to this to try to get to Koresh's room and, and the stockpile. On the west slope of the roof, three agents reached Koresh's window and were crouching beside it when they came under fire. And in the video, you can see bullet holes coming from inside, penetrating the wall outwards towards the agents. One agent was actually killed and another was wounded because of this. The third agent scampered over the peak of the roof and joined the other agents attempting to enter the arms room. The window was smashed in, a flashbang stun grenade was thrown in, and three agents entered the arms room. When another tried to follow, a hail of bullets penetrated the wall and wounded him. But he was able to reach a ladder and slide to safety. An agent fired with his shotgun at Branch Davidians until he was hit in the head by return fire and killed. These people, yes, they were civilians, but they had prepared for this. Some people would say that they actually had, at this point, more firearm training than the agents themselves. That's up in the air for me, but... Yeah. Inside the arms room... The agents killed a Branch Davidian and discovered a cache of weapons, but then came under heavy fire. Two were wounded. They escaped. As they escaped, the third agent laid down cover fire, killing a Branch Davidian. As he made his escape, he hit his head on a wooden support beam and fell off the roof, but he survived. An agent outside provided them with cover fire, but was shot by a Branch Davidian and killed instantly. Dozens of ATF agents took cover, many behind Branch Davidian vehicles, and exchanged fire with the Branch Davidians. The number of ATF wounded increased, and an agent was killed by gunfire from the compound as agents were firing at a Branch Davidian perched on top of the water tower. This exchange of gunfire continued from start to finish like two hours. God. About 45 minutes in, the gunfire started to slow, but it did not stop hour in, ATF actually started running low on ammunition. The Branch Davidians at this point had more ammunition than the ATF had come for a siege with. Amazing. There were a bunch of negotiations. At that point, they had a negotiator call and try to negotiate with Koresh. They knew that there were children inside and they wanted to try to get those children out. Koresh did not want to send the children out. There are like, oh, I forget. But there are a lot of phone calls. I want to say, I could be wrong, but I want to say there was like 700 phone calls between the two of them trying to negotiate. The negotiator tried to get them to cease fire. Eventually, they got them to cease fire, but people in the complex still were not sending anyone out, not even the children. This allowed the ATF to count their dead and wounded and to get them evacuated and get them treated. Five Branch Davidians were killed up to that point, and there were actually two others who were killed at the hands of the Branch Davidians after having been wounded. So they killed two of their own. Their bodies were buried on the grounds nearly six hours after the 1130 ceasefire. So... Eventually, negotiators facilitated the release of 19 children, 
ranging in age from five months to 12 years old without their parents. They all came out without their parents because their parents were super devoted to Koresh. So 98 people at that point remained in the building. There were still children. Not all the children were let out. So there were still children in there. And the children that were released were the children who were non-blood relation to Koresh. Koresh kept, quote unquote, his children in the compound with him. During the rest of the siege, the FBI and Texas Rangers were actually interviewing these children, and the children had claimed to be physically and sexually abused long before this standoff. This was the key justification offered by the FBI for launching tear gas attacks, which is what came next. While they are trying to get this tear gas ready, the FBI sent a video camera to the Branch Davidians. In the videotape, made by Koresh's followers, Koresh introduced his children and his wives to the FBI negotiators, including several minors who claimed to have had babies fathered by Koresh, who all stayed with him in that compound. Several Branch Davidians made statements in the video, and on day nine of the siege, which was March 8th, the Branch Davidians sent the videotape out to show the FBI that there were no hostages, that everyone inside was actually staying upon their own free will, except for, of course, the children. The children didn't decide to stay in there. The children didn't decide any of this. Yeah. The negotiator's log shows that the tape was reviewed, and there was concern that the tapes released to the media would gain sympathy for Koresh and the Branch Davidians, so the videos were not released. Videos also showed the 23 children still inside the compound and childcare professionals on the outside prepared to take those children as well as the previously released 19. As the siege continued, Koresh negotiated more time allegedly so he could write religious documents, which he said he needed to complete before he surrendered. His conversations, dense with biblical imagery. So as the siege wore on, two factions developed within the FBI, one believing negotiation to be the answer, the other force. Increasingly aggressive techniques were used to try to force the Branch Davidians out. For instance, sleep deprivation of the inhabitants by means of all-night broadcasts of recordings of jet planes, pop music, chanting, and like the screams of rabbits being slaughtered. I believe they also used the song, These Boots Are Made For Walking. Oh, yeah. They had armored vehicles outside the compound, nine Bradley fighting vehicles carrying M651 CS tear gas grenades and ferret rounds, and five M728 combat engineer vehicles obtained from the U.S. Army began patrolling tanks. The armored vehicles were used to destroy perimeter fencing and outbuildings, crush cars belonging to the Branch Davidians, and they repeatedly drove over the grave of Branch Davidian Peter Ghent, despite protests by the Branch Davidians and negotiators. That's not cool, military. 
Two of the three water storage tanks on the roof of the main building had been damaged during the initial ATF raid. Eventually, the FBI cut power and water to the compound, forcing those inside to survive on rainwater and stockpiled military MRE rations. Despite the increasingly aggressive tactics, Koresh ordered a group of his followers to leave. Eleven people left and were arrested as material witnesses, with one person charged with conspiracy to murder. The FBI voiced concern that the Branch Davidians who were left inside might commit mass suicide, as had happened in 1978 at Jim Jones' Jonestown Complex. If you don't know what Jonestown is, oh man. If you've ever heard someone say, don't drink the Kool-Aid, that comes from Jonestown. That's what people would say about Jonestown. I know. So... Koresh had repeatedly denied any plans for mass suicide when confronted by negotiators during the standoff, and people leaving the compound had not seen any such preparation. So, the final assault took place on April 19, 1993. It had been 51 days since the initial siege. Because the Branch Davidians were heavily armed, the FBI hostage rescue team's arms included 50 caliber rifles and armored combat engineering vehicles. The CEVs used explosives to punch holes in the walls of the buildings of the compound so that they could pump in CS gas or tear gas and try to force the Branch Davidians out without harming them. The stated plan called for increasing amounts of gas to be pumped in over two days to increase pressure. Officially, no armed assault was to be made. Loudspeakers were to be used to tell the Branch Davidians that there would be no armed assault and to ask them not to fire on the vehicles. According to FBI, the hostage rescue team agents had been permitted to return any incoming fire, but no shots were fired by federal agents on that day. Several Branch Davidians opened fire, however, and the FBI hostage rescue team's response was only to increase the amount of gas being used. They didn't even return fire. After more than six hours, no Branch Davidians had left the building sheltering instead in an underground concrete block. The bunker, as they called it, is what I told you about earlier. In the video, you see these tanks using the end of the tank muzzle. They use the end of that to like punch all these holes. You can see that. You can see them punching all these holes into the walls in the video. At some point... In multiple areas of the compound, fires broke out. In one of the videos, and this is where the conspiracy theories get real deep, you can see on the end of one of those tanks, it it punches its hole and as it pulls out, there's fire on the end of the tank. This is what leads conspiracy theorists to say that they started the fire. However, there are audio recordings from inside. And of course, it's hard to hear because of the tanks and everything happening outside. But a couple of the Davidians are actually talking about pouring fuel all over the compound. 
did the cultists start the fire or did the military start the fire? I believe that the cultists did it. It is pretty clear when you hear them talking about it in the audio that this was their plan all along, that they weren't going to let their compound be sieged. It was going to be on their own terms. You can hear a lot of them talking about pouring the fuel down the hallways and then a fire breaks out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. Three of them actually broke out simultaneously in different parts of the building. They spread really quickly. It was so quick on the footage. You can see that it's so quick on the footage. These fires are spreading and they start in three different areas. It's not just the area of where that tank penetrated the building and and when it was removed, it had the fire at the end. I don't know. You think what you want. Footage of the blaze and and because this fire spread so quickly i mean it engulfed the the compound and footage of the blaze would was actually broadcast live by television crews only nine people left the building during the fire because apparently koresh was inside telling them that this was their destiny and that if they were true believers they would they would basically let themselves be killed in this fire and that they wouldn't run so 76 people died a large concentration of bodies weapons and ammunition was found in the bunker they actually did autopsies on the branch davidians and here's the deal up to 20 of them that were found had actually been shot. Koresh himself had been shot between the eyes, one gunshot wound between the eyes. Mm. So not a lot of them actually died from being burned alive or smoke inhalation. They all shot each other. And this included five children under the age of 14. I just, ugh. And one of the children, a three-year-old, was actually stabbed in the chest. So autopsies of the dead revealed that some women and children were found beneath a fallen concrete wall of a storage room where they died of skull injuries. There are actual autopsy photos of some of the children who were determined to have died by cyanide poisoning. One child had died by burning tear gas. Only one body had traces of benzene, which are the components of tear gas, but that the gas insertions had finished early one hour before the fire started and that it was enough time for solvents to dissipate from the bodies of the branch Davidians that had inhaled the tear gas. And not only that, but they had stockpiled so well, the the cultists had stockpiled so well that they actually had gas masks, which is why they were able to not have to leave or not be knocked out or anything like that. They had they all had gas masks except for the children. The adults had gas masks. The children did not. Some people speculate that they had a suicide pact all along. It's really up in the air. No one knows. And and the Davidians who are still alive are still 
so devoted because that wasn't the only branch. They're still Davidians that they're still not talking about what really happened that day or, you know, what actually went down or what plans that they really had. Most of the survivors from the cultists that you see in any kind of documentary basically just speak about the events of the day, like a play-by-play. They don't say anything about, well, this is what we wanted to do. This is what we were told to do. They just say, this is what happened. This is what I saw. This is, you know, stuff like that. In that Truth or Lies Waco documentary, they actually interview a couple of the cultist survivors, including two of the children who were released prior to the fire. Waco was handled extremely poorly. Waco was also terribly sad. Yes, agree. I am not personally proud of that. That went way wrong. Yeah. I remember watching it on TV as a child. I remember a burning building and this guy with like an afro, like waving his arms. I remember how long the standoff was and it just went on and on. And I remember watching it going, this is not right. Something's not right. It looked like the kind of scene that you see from another country. Not here. It did not look like here. Ugh, this is not a war zone. This is a safe place. What the hell's going on, you know? Right. So the events at Mount Carmel spurred both criminal prosecution and civil litigation for the surviving Branch Davidians. On August 3rd, 1993, a federal grand jury returned a superseding 10-count indictment against 12 of the surviving Davidians. The grand jury charged, among other things, that the Branch Davidians had conspired to and aided and abetted in murder of federal officers and had unlawfully possessed and used various firearms. The government dismissed the charges against one of the 12 Davidians pursuant to a plea bargain. After a jury trial lasting nearly two months, the jury acquitted four of the Davidians on all charges. Additionally, the jury acquitted all of the Branch Davidians on the murder-related charges, but convicted five of them on lesser charges, including aiding and abetting the voluntary manslaughter of federal agents. Eight Branch Davidians were convicted on firearm charges. Six of the eight appealed both their sentences and their convictions. On September 19, 2000, Judge Walter Smith followed the Supreme Court's instructions and cut 25 years from the sentences of five convicted Branch Davidians and five years from the sentence of another. All Branch Davidians have been released from prison as of July 2007. You've reached the end of our episode. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?